You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled The Monstrous Cost of Fraud and features experts from Chargebacks 911 and Vesta. Okay, we're going to get started. I want to thank again everyone for joining us today. Um, hopefully, um, you will be rewarded with a good webinar. We're going to do our best. Um, uh, my name is Jared Wright. I'm the uh, VP of Marketing at Chargebacks 911. For those of you unfamiliar with Chargebacks 911, um, we uh, help merchants prevent chargebacks before they happen. And then for the chargebacks that we were unable to prevent, uh, we help merchants respond and uh, try to get those chargebacks reversed. Um, I'm excited to welcome Matt Haroldson. He's the Senior Vice President of Strategy and Development at uh, Vesta. Um, Matt, do you want to uh, tell us a little bit here at the top, uh, tell us a little bit about what Vesta does? Yeah, thanks, Jared. I'm excited to be here, and thanks for inviting us on. We appreciate all those that have joined here today. Hopefully, as Jared said, it'll be rewarding to you all. Uh, about Vesta, we're a global leader in fraud recognition, detection, and prevention uh, we uh, we operate a platform that's used by some of the world's biggest brands like AT&T and Telcel uh, to drive their approvals and their total cost of fraud to zero. The approvals obviously higher, total cost of fraud to zero. And we do that through our flagship product, which is shifting the liability of a chargeback to Vesta and uh, and taking all that liability on ourselves. And the goal obviously is to take their product cost, cost of fraud to zero, but also drive their approval rates higher. So that's us. That's great. And I'm always excited to have um you know, uh, guests on and do uh, webinars with with people that sort of deal in the the third party sort of pre-transaction fraud world. I think um, I think the the pre-transaction and post-transaction fraud. I mean, you know, they're entirely different 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 worlds. Um, but I think that they're important for many merchants. Um, you know, there's certainly examples of merchants that have uh, a, a very high um, liability in one area or the other, but most merchants are struggling, you know, and one of the, one of the struggles that, that we help them deal with is figuring out, you know, how, how big a problem is the criminal fraud versus the friendly fraud versus, you know, the things that I'm doing, um, where, where I'm, you know, creating problems accidentally. And, um, and, and so, you know, the, the criminal fraud piece of that is a really big part. So I'm, I'm happy to have you here. And, uh, I, I hope nobody minds that, you know, we went with a Halloween theme a little bit early. Um, I'm I'm a big Halloween guy, so uh, so any opportunity that I have to 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 you know go with a Halloween theme, I'm gonna I'm gonna take. So, um, but besides that, I just want to go over kind of how the webinar is going to be structured. Um, I'm gonna probably talk for about five or ten minutes, and then uh, Matt's gonna do a presentation. Our presentations, um, you know, we have some slides built that are fairly visual, so um, if possible, you know, kind of give us your attention for those, close your windows, and you know that'll be kind of a visual part of the. Uh, um, afternoon, and then uh, after that, we'll we'll answer uh, many of the questions that were submitted uh, when you register for the webinar. And if we have time, we may look at questions that were asked during the webinar. Um, we definitely encourage you, as you think of them, please submit questions. Um, if we're not unable to answer them during the webinar, um, I'll I'll make sure that somebody answers them afterwards. Um, if if I don't know the answer personally, I'll make sure that the uh, um, question is handed off to somebody internally that can get you an answer. Um, also, people always ask, will the webinar be available for replay? It will be. Um, you, you should receive that tomorrow if everything goes well. 
Um, and um, if you're an auditory learner, I also recommend that you check out um, our podcast. Um, you can search for Charge Forward, all one word, uh, with Chargebacks 911, however you listen to podcasts. And that will include uh, this webinar eventually, as well as some of our past webinars in audio form. Okay. For those of you that this is the first time you join us, um, I like to start these webinars with what I call a dumb question. I think it's important not to be afraid to ask dumb questions in life. And since I have the opportunity to speak with different experts, I've committed to ask a real question that I have, um, you know, the, the, uh, in, the, in their area of expertise. Um, so Matt, do you mind if I ask a dumb question off the top here? Go for it. Great. Um, so my question, and just to give you a sense of how I do this typically is, you know, what I'll do is I'll go to, um, the Vesta's website in this case, and I'll kind of look around for something that sort of, you know, that I don't fully understand or that seems interesting to me. And I didn't have to go far on your website because I came to the homepage and you've actually mentioned it already. And, and one of the, the things that you highlight directly on your homepage is zero fraud loss. Um, and that really got me thinking because one of the things that's really interesting to me is sort of the cat and mouse game that exists between fraudsters and the the people who, who prevent fraud. Um, and, you know, my understanding is generally that the fraudsters, you know, they're getting very good at their job and the people that, that prevent fraud are essentially getting very good at their job. And so it's a little bit of a, like an arms race at times where, you know, maybe the fraudsters kind of get a leg up for a little while and then the fraud, fraud prevention teams figure out a way to, to, to prevent that that type of fraud from from being successful um and so w when when i read the zero fraud loss i mean really it got me thinking um are we ever going to get to a place i mean is there a technology on the future that you think is going to be a game changer for the fraud prevention um side are we ever going to get to a place where third-party credit card fraud stolen credit cards are really not going to be anything that merchants need to worry about typically well, that's not a dumb question. That feels like a million dollar question, actually. So uh, well, well done. Um, yeah, you've already mentioned it. Certainly, that's that we take all the liability. So there's one way to go uh, take your fraud to zero. Um, but it's a great question. And and I think what what you're asking is, it, we have to look at sort of the history of the last you know several years is there's there's attack vectors coming from all different places. And what I think us and our competitors have really done a good job of is recognizing that in more real time. So you think about the impact of machine learning supervised and unsupervised is really enabling um, you know, vendors like us to, to react in real time and sort of stamp that out before it really uh, gets started and then to learn from it so we can eliminate it and, and moving forward. The nice thing about fraudsters, they tend to move on pretty quickly if they get thwarted. So you're continually stamping that out is, is what we, we get good at and our, our models can, can then reflect it and, and going forward. Um, you know, that's not to say that they won't try again through other vectors, but we've seen uh, historically the fraud rates do move down, um, move down quite quite a lot. So it's getting better. Will it ever get to zero? Um, I can't say that for sure. Is there a, a technology we're all sitting on and hiding? I would say not really. Um, and uh, But we're all fighting hard at it. And I think the, the answer to that question is it's going down. It's going down in a, in a, in a strong way. Costs of fraud are going up and we'll talk more about that. But actual chargebacks in some cases are going down and we're getting better at fighting it and getting smarter as we fight it. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. And I think, you know, I hear, I hear you talking about, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and stuff like that. And then, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of excitement around that, but, but then you realize, well, the, the fraudsters are, you know, once AI becomes accessible to, 
you know, you know, once it becomes affordable and really effective um, tool, I mean, the fraudsters are obviously going to implement a similar, you know, a, a bad guy AI. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I, I, I yeah, I bad guy AI. In some cases, they're actually trying to mimic human beings with, you know, these human click farms that some of you may have thought about. Is it we're in some ways getting so good at recognizing their, you know, they want to be efficient in their attacks, so they do these bots and, and other places, other things that they do, but um, they recognize that we're getting good at that. So now they're putting people in click farms to yeah. mimic the transaction in that way. So, but there's other ways to also mitigate against that. That's interesting. Great. Okay. So, so this webinar is, you know, about the cost of fraud, the cost of chargeback. So I, I really thought something I haven't talked about on these webinars in a, in a while, something I don't talk too much about. I'm not um, a huge expert about is it's really the excessive chargeback programs because I think you know just as a public service announcement um, you know something that that we see a lot is merchants that come to us because they've gotten into trouble they've gotten in an excessive chargeback program and really once once you're there once you've breached those thresholds and you're kind of in hot water um, you, you have sort of too many chargebacks um, the the costs you know start to grow exponentially. And um, it's very difficult, you know, once you've built a business, once you have a marketing strategy, once you have all of these pieces in place, and the end result is that you have, you know, a higher chargeback uh, percentage than, than you're, you're allowed to have or should have, um, it's very difficult to make those changes effectively and without, um, you know, sacrificing your, your business model. Um, so it's important that that merchants really be aware of where those thresholds are, that they they monitor their chargebacks and make sure that they're not anywhere near their thresholds, um, because you know everything can happen very quickly and it is very very difficult to make the types of changes um, that you need to make in the in the time period um, that that you have before you are really just out of luck and you lose the ability to process forever. And an example of you know one of the reasons that this can be complicated is just the way that um, the different schemes um, uh, calculate your chargeback ratio. And I think that the most recent sort of base level is a 0.9. I think if you're above 0.9, then you start incurring fees and you start classified as a high risk merchant. And you have, it's just, it's just more difficult to process. I think it's double that than, than you're in the program. And then, you know, you really need to, to make some changes um, quickly or you're going to lose uh, your transactions. But, um, but the difference between Visa and MasterCard is that they're going to calculate it differently. Um, so, you know, the, the example that you give is, you know, if if the exact same number of char chargebacks, but you have one busy month and then and then a slow month, um, you know, the chargebacks that you get from the busy month, uh, you know, impact the chargebacks, you know, the, the transactions that you have in the slow month. So if you have a very cyclical sales cycle, you can you can breach these thresholds and uh, really start to find yourself in trouble. Um, even if even if you're providing customer service and you're doing everything correctly, so really you don't even want to be, you know, close to that threshold because of the variance of uh, the different ways. Um, and th and this is a simplistic view because you know we talk to processors and processors have their own way of calculating. A lot of times processors will use um, you know percentage of transactions or uh, uh, transaction value. Um, and they have their own sort of limits. So, so it's it's important that that you keep an eye on this um, because because that's one of the major chargeback costs. Um, but assuming that everybody on this webinar isn't anywhere near this, I'm going to kind of speak a little bit more abstractly for the rest of the webinar. Um, and and the, and the first way to think about it is, you know, I like to visualize it as a um, the tip of the iceberg. It's kind of a cliche, but it's it's 
you know, a, a very easy way to think about it. And the mistake that a lot of merchants make when they think about chargeback cost is they say, well, I'm getting the number of chargebacks I have and the average, you know, value of those chargebacks, and they multiply those together, and they, you know, they have a a, a manageable annual revenue loss to chargebacks. It's sort of, you know, in a lot of businesses, what feels like a rounding error, just sort of a cost of doing business. But the truth is that there are all of these sort of secondary hidden costs that maybe you're not factoring in. And so it's very important that when you think about the cost of chargebacks for your business and the the, the impact of friendly fraud and the impact of third-party criminal fraud, um, you really take a holistic view. Um, because otherwise, you may end up making decisions thinking that chargebacks are sort of the lesser of the the two evils. So, for example, if you're evaluating, you know, your return policy and you want to eliminate chargebacks by, um, you know, having, you know, a different, or you want to, you know, you, you're you're okay with the cost of uh, chargebacks because you you want to discourage returns. You, you're doing something like charging a restocking fee, for example, is something we run into a lot. Um, and what happens is you know, you may reduce returns, um, but you're going to increase chargebacks. And if you're thinking about it, if you're thinking about chargebacks and returns as being sort of a similar loss, um, you, you know, nine times out of ten, you're you're not doing the math correctly. Um, in fact, uh, and I had to look this up right before the webinar. I'm not sure when they released this. It was uh, the most recent LexisNexis tr True Cost of Fraud study. Um, in that report, they have a fraud multiplier that the industry always gets really excited about. And um, last year, I think it was one of the highest that it's been. Um, it was for every dollar of fraud, which would essentially be friendly fraud or criminal fraud. So for every dollar charged back, essentially, um, the merchant is uh, the the actual cost of the merchant is three dollars and sixty cents. So that's more than a three and a half times multiplier. Um, so if you just want to, you know, if you don't want to figure out the line items, if you just want to do that math in your head really quick and think, you know, for for every every chargeback I'm dealing with, it's actually costing me three or four times that. Um, that would be a safe sort of shortcut. Um, <clears throat> now, in addition to that, there's something that we talk about is, or I talk about anyway, is sort of the the abstract, sort of ethereal, um, um, less specific, less tangible. Um, costs associated with chargebacks. And these are these are the costs that aren't included in the LexisNexis report that are very hard to quantify, but I think still are very real costs. And the first is sort of the ambient increased processing cost, right? The processors, um, uh, uh, issuing banks, acquiring banks, you know, pretty much, pretty much everybody in the um, um, tr uh, uh, transaction cycle has some responsibility for keeping staff, you know, doing paperwork, um, you know, incurring some some operational liability for in order to support and facilitate the chargeback process and those are passed down to the people that receive the chargebacks through fees but they're also sort of built into the cost of processing so the two percent cost or three percent cost or whatever you're paying some fraction of that is actually a uh, a, a cost that probably wouldn't be there if um the the banks and everybody involved didn't need to to, to deal with chargebacks. So, so that's sort of a, a shared cost that is, is very real. Similarly, rising prices, right? Um, E-commerce stores, they need to make a profit. So if they're losing two to 5% of total revenue um, to chargebacks, that two to 5% is gonna get tacked on to the, the retail cost of products. So we're all experiencing the rising prices. 
Um, and, and that's not a specific, you know, that's not a, if, if you get your, your chargebacks under control, um, it, you know, th things are still going to be the price that they are, but um, it's sort of a, a cost that we're still all dealing with. Um, another one, and, and I'm, I'm sure Matt is going to talk about this a lot, is um, false declines. Um, false declines, you know, not having your fraud prevention or thinking about your chargeback problem as being exclusively a fraud prevention problem and being wrong about that. Um, specifically, you know, you, you, you're, you're, you have the potential of uh, uh, declining valid orders in an attempt to, to be overly cautious. Um, and then the last one is refund abuse. Um, you know, if you have a chargeback problem, one of the things that merchants do is in order to mitigate the chargeback liability, they increase, they, they make it very easy to, to um, submit refunds. And uh, customers, you know, the sort of the, the people that would engage in the most malicious forms of friendly fraud have learned this and uh, they will target companies that they can abuse their their return policy. Sometimes it's innocent, you know, I'm going to buy a dress, I'm going to wear it out, and then I'm going to return it. But, you know, there's other sort of schemes that happen um, that are a little bit more akin to, to fraud. Um, and and they're sort of exploiting the return policies that were in, in purpose, in, in many ways, meant to reduce chargebacks. So it's sort of like the secondary cost that that it's just very difficult to understand or think about, but it's another reason why it's important that your pre-transaction sort of third-party fraud and then your post-transaction friendly fraud um, re remain something that you focus on. Um, <clears throat> so that's basically, I'm gonna keep mine pretty abstract. I know Matt's got some pretty detailed slides. So I'm gonna hand the reins to him. Let me give you, um, okay, Matt, you should be good to go. Okay, so you already you already got my info. We'll uh, we'll step on to, um, well, well great setup. Um, you know, Jerry, you talk a lot about you know the cost of a chargeback, the true cost of a chargeback, and you know fraud rates, which I think are very you know common and and understand and understood by this audience most likely. Like, and that is what traditionally a lot of merchants will focus on is you know looking at that chargeback rate and and sort of assessing that as the cost of their program. But I'm going to shift some gears here and talk more about the total cost of fraud, which I've, which I've mentioned before, and the impacts that low approval rates have on that sort of hidden cost. So we'll go through some of that here. Um, but the numbers show that this is still a massive issue in terms of fraud growing. Now we talked earlier and that dumb question was, yeah, we are getting better at driving fraud rates down, but with the increase of global commerce jumping up, it's also created more opportunities, just a bigger pool to swim in um, for sure. And then the cost of fight fraud is actually going up and 6% is kind of the estimate that a lot of um, uh, industry uh, articles quote. Um, and it's also driving this, what we call the false declines, false positives, another way to say it, to a 300, nearly $400 billion challenge. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. There's even revenue impacts beyond just a simple false decline that, that, that are uh, burdensome to your business and that need to really be considered in your total fraud program. So with the problem still prevalent, you know, really what are the trade-offs um, you, know, you can, you know, overfocus on fraud and leave that 4x transaction gap on your top line revenue by being super conservative and avoiding all those, you know, they are scary, right? Jerry talked a lot about how, how it can really escalate and that is a problem you need to consider. Or, you know, do you balance like approving everything? Um, and then you get into, uh, you know, chargeback issues where you know, you're, you're basically, I'm sorry, I actually think I reversed it. You're getting into those penalties and issues from the networks um, and escalating costs around that. Um, and then even your cost support go up as Jared so elegantly talked about. 
And then the downstream impact really from the tool sets underperforming, you know, it's, it's like a reverse flywheel where it's bad data in, bad performance, bad data, and you're not really learning um, what good transactions look like. You're certainly not being able to recognize what fraud looks like. So it's this perpetual effect that sort of you know, builds on itself. Um, and, you know, you kind of say, so what, where do you go and what are the impacts of that program uh, not, not functioning the way it should? So there's, you know, six key areas I'm going to talk a little bit about around the total cost of fraud. So I'll talk about uh, um, kind of areas that, that uh, impact the most from a mismanaged fraud program. Um, I don't know how old you are, but when I was in school, they had a, they would they would do uh, slideshows and they would make a little ding sound when it was uh, time to advance to the next slide. So yeah, something like that. <laughs> no worries. We did run through this and it worked perfectly until, of course, the option actual event here. So you can go ahead and advance this. So um, we talked about false declines, you know, huge revenue impact problem. Um, but it's it's more than just lost revenue. It's really a lost opportunity. You know, the obvious one is capturing immediate revenue, but that lifetime value and, and dependent upon the nature of your business. And you all have this number, which is how many times is that customer coming back? So not taking into consideration just that one event, but if a customer traditionally comes back five, six, seven, eight, 20 times to make purchases over courses of or, or months or years, that has a huge impact on future revenues that, you know, don't scale for you in the way that they should advance the next or Bing. Um, the next is really all about that, you know, customer experience and online friction. So um, these are things that don't show up necessarily in your approval rates or your decline rates or your fraud rates. It's how are you losing customers along the way because you put in, you know, friction within the process, particularly around detecting fraud and being sure that this is the right customer. Um, you know, some programs are required like 3DS in Europe, but uh, other challenges can be problematic to customers. So it's not just <clears throat> um, a, a manual review that, that may or may not get a customer through. It's even if that customer comes through, will they come back a second or third time depending upon your, again, your lifetime value. You can see there, uh, statistics are very unforgiving, whether you're a millennial or other, about having problems during the checkout process and, and coming back and making further transactions in advance. And realized fraud is is obvious. Um, Jerry, you talk a lot about this, and obviously um, the stolen goods and services and the fees that you talked about and the non-recoverable fees, even your original transaction fee should be considered. You already paid for um, you know, a, 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 the processing cost, the restocking fees, the shipping fees. These are all things that need to be considered beyond just the simple fraud rate. And then if you advance the, um, you know, the fraud detection tools, um, this is the vendor solutions like Avesta, or if you have an internal solution, it's not just the tool itself, it's the cost of support, um, the teams around that to sustain it. But the other question you really should be asking is, is your fraud tool optimized? You know, we talked about the flywheel effect um, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a good fraud tool building on itself. So good data in, accuracy in, starts to the machine learning starts to take hold and you start to get uh, better results which then build on itself it's that flywheel um, that drive your approval rates up because that's really again what you're after um, and your and your fraud rates down um, to stay within compliance um, and then the ancillary piece if you want to advance is the operational piece so a mismanaged fraud program is you know heavy into ancillary costs for teams in particular whether it's i've got increasing manual reviews or 
I have a chargeback problem, so I have a big chargeback team, and I've got to represent a, a lot of, uh, of, of disputes, um, or you're not using a tool like Chargebacks 911 um, and efficiently managing and upping your chances of recovery or efficiently managing your workflows and you know, doing things in a, in a very um, manual kind of a way when you could be automated. And ultimately, go ahead and advance it, Jared. It's all about your reputation in the marketplace. You know, it's the reviews that customers are leaving, um, bringing in brand new customers or potentially pushing customers away to your competitors uh, and creating, again, those lifetime value customers. And then potentially impacts your brand. And, and if you get kicked off the network and not being able to accept a major um, network card, like a Visa or MasterCard, is going to be a problem. It's going to hurt your sales. So you've got to be thinking about all of these, these elements um, and in your fraud program. And so what can you really do about it if you want to advance here? Well, get to balance. And that's really, you know, what uh, the goal is. And the first part is really understanding what your fraud rate really is um, and so that you can really understand where the optimization zone is. So it's very obvious for most of us that, you know, high fraud losses, fraud losses are going to drive your costs up. Um, you're going to deal with all the chargeback issues that Jared talked about. But what's less obvious is really the low fraud uh, can come actually at a cost. Um, that cost is, is in many cases, exponentially higher than your actual true fraud rate. So if you have a, a you know a low fraud rate and you're you're excited about that that's you know best in class or everybody's happy, but your approval rate is let's say 85% of, of, of transactions when it could be 90 and you're doing 100 million dollars annually of business, that's a huge impact to your top line that way way outweighs the actual cost of fraud. That's not to say that you don't want to consider fraud in the process, but are you overcorrecting? So the goal is to really find that optimization and understand really uh, what your approval rates could be and what your fraud rates should be, and not just artificially drive them up or down. Go ahead, Jared, to the next one. So what can you do about it? Um, you know, there's a couple of things um, that, that you can actually do from a, from a best practices point of view. And the first part of it is, kind of like the, the, the previous slide talked about, is understanding the ecosystem. So quantifying your fraud and approval rates. So, how do you do that? Um, really, the best way to learn is to accept more transactions. And you may take on a bit more fraud, but you you really start to understand what do good customers look like, what do fraudsters look like, and start to recognize versus try to react and build your, your solution around your optimized rate that, that the previous slide so eloquently showed. You can do that through A-B testing on your models as well if you want to be, you know, kind of lean into it a little more cautiously or you can try to industry benchmark. So go out to analysts, go out to competitors. I know within the fraud space, there's likely more sharing of, hey, what are your fraud rates? How are you doing on your approvals? Um, and try to benchmark where you sit so you can understand if you have a bigger problem or a smaller problem. Um, and then you ultimately wanna start optimizing around your transaction approvals, considering fraud as a recognition piece versus, um, you know, a reactionary piece is how do I recognize fraud and how to recognize good customers? How do I drive my approval rates to the maximum without getting in trouble with the card networks? And then you got to create a good customer experience. So think about your rules, particularly during checkout, you know, making sure they're not too linear. So that if somebody has a new address, they're kicked out to a manual review when you have other ways to, to actually authenticate that customer um, and give yourself a high probability that this is the actual um, um, user of the card. 
Uh, so that's critical not to get overly kind of manual uh, in that process and overly stringent in your rules and, and, and deploying and try to use tools to passively authenticate customers. There's a lot of great biometric and behavioral data science out there that, that you can utilize to understand where customers are, are they live body, um, have they been in a location that's currently known, things that they don't even have to, to input to, to validate themselves and they can move through the process much, much smoother. So you know, the last is really about the automation and the, and the technology piece. So leveraging the machine learning tools to protect you from the backside, whether it's supervised or unsupervised and those unknown fraud vectors. Um, and then think about your program as a holistic piece. So not just the checkout process, but are you utilizing session data early on and sharing that with you know, your checkout fraud vendor potentially? Because in some cases you're using different people for uh, fraud on the front end and fraud on the back end. Connecting those pieces and sharing that holistically is important. It's about the customer journey and you should be looking not only at your approval rates and your fraud rates, but also your conversion rates and where where customers are dropping out. Are they dropping out because you've challenged them too often? Are you dropping them out because they're inputting too much data that that you you may already have um, from from them or be able to auto-populate data in a way that makes that transaction more smooth? So look at it broadly and not just um, you know at at the uh, at the checkout. And then post obviously is considering the things that Jared talked about and how am I actually managing my my risk on the post transaction side, whether you're outsourcing it to a vendor like Vesta or you're utilizing uh, uh, tools to manage that um, that through the process and, and increase your ability to recover, but also you know potentially cut down on chargebacks overall and first party and third party fraud. Go ahead uh, and advance that, Jared. So the benefits I've talked a lot about, you know, revenue and the impact, and it's you know four x higher than than actual realized fraud. I do want to reemphasize the customer lifetime value piece because a good managed program is it's it's that flywheel again building on itself, getting that customer through the door the first time and having them come back multiple times is a huge revenue opportunity that needs to be considered. And you're optimizing your customer experience. Uh, your card abandonments go way down. Um, and that impacts your ability to obviously convert customers, um, but you're getting a better view of your customers as well, especially if they can make it through all the way through the process and building a solution uh, that is holistic, uh, that performs better and creates that flywheel effect again uh, so that your accuracy goes up and you're getting more good customers through and your fraud rates should be going down as well. And ultimately you get customers talking about you in the marketplace in a positive way so you get new customers through the door that would never have come or at least you're not getting customers talking negatively and moving out the door so it all needs to work together as an ecosystem and thought of end to end from first session to checkout to post transaction and working together holistically is um, creates a better program overall and i think that might be it to me before we move on to questions yeah, so we're running a little bit over, probably uh, mostly because of my rambling and also um, the little bit of a technical difficulty. So let's jump into these um, questions real quick, try to see how many we can get through. Okay, the um, uh, first question is, um, what's what's your top tip on how to reduce false positives and accept as many good orders as possible? Yeah, that's a great question. Do you want me to take that? or? Yeah, please. That's that's right up right up your alley. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I spoke to some of this earlier, so I'll try not to repeat too much. But you know, there's really multiple levers that impact reduction in false positives. Um, you can be getting poor data collection at checkout, or you have poor coverage from your third-party sources. So you got a lot of holes 
that are really critical to you know assessing risk uh, in your fraud models. But I would say the big biggest impact that, uh, that I see is using a stringent rule-based approach, or at least a heavy rules-based approach. And we're not against rules by any means. I mean, we certainly use them. They're quite um, necessary and critical to the risk process. But hard rules without using alternative ways to verify transactions can lead to you know, seemingly normal scenarios being kicked out. So a new address, an alternate address, even new devices and new locations and, and email addresses are more often actually a sign of somebody who's just buying a new phone or, or moving to a new location than a fraudster. So I'd, I'd be taking a hard look at where your rules sit um, and use them really strategically and combine with the supervised and unsupervised modeling um, to improve your approval rates uh, and thwart new fraud vectors at the same time. Yeah, I think I think those are all, all really good points. And the, and the other thing that I would add to that, um, and I'd be happy to I'd be curious to get your feedback on this, Matt. But one of the things that that we sort of help um, merchants deal with is um, the the data problem. And and what we'll find a lot of times is that merchants will assume that they have you know 60% of their chargebacks are due to uh, criminal fraud and so they will just feed those back into their mach machine learning algorithms and they'll you know try to tra train their uh, um, their systems on that and um, what we find is that sometimes you know w whether it's 60 percent 80 percent whatever that is um, merchants very very often don't have a full sense of of why these chargebacks are happening a lot a lot of chargebacks that are friendly fraud or uh, post-transaction, maybe family fraud, that type of stuff, um, still have the the fraud reason code. And that's for, for a few reasons. The two primary ones are um, that fraudsters know that if you file a chargeback under a fraud reason code, so if you say, I didn't make this charge, um, the uh, the, um, the the merchant is much less likely to dispute it. So so the most malicious forms of chargeback fraud usually carry um, a, a fraud reason code. And then um, the, the the other reason is because um, you know there's, uh, banks just don't know what to do with a lot of chargebacks. So uh, when people call in, you know they may be asking for information. They're trying to figure out what a charge is. Um, you know banks have very few tools available to them. And so if you're not using some of the products to to reduce chargebacks and to provide additional information to banks when they request it, um, then you know, banks are not going to have any choice but to um, take all of those sort of sort of borderline or sort of gray area um, um, cases, and they're going to assign uh, fraud reason codes to them. So, um, so it's just something that that's important. So, what happens is if you have, you know, if you're feeding all of that back into, and you're saying, hey, watch out for um, uh, transactions like these because it turned into a chargeback, then then you're going to be training your 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 fraud prevention model to look for you know, good transactions because because there's nothing wrong with the transaction itself. All of the 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 fraud and all of the the chargeback occurred because of things that that happened after the transaction. Um, and so being able to parse those apart with any type of uh, uh, accuracy is is very important. And so so one of the services that we provide is you know we we allow um, our data, the data that, that we have, the wealth of data that we have av available on the chargebacks to be fed back into the to the fraud system. Um, <clears throat> what can be done within a dispute process to prevent pre-arbitrations? Well, we're, we're getting kind of close, so I'm, I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but I would say, um, and just for everyone that doesn't know, uh, pre-arbitration is just, you know, it, you can kind of call them second chargebacks, sometimes we call them, um, but basically they're, they're chargebacks that either the issuing bank or the consumer themselves, um, you know, they've been reversed, but um, they, they're disputing it again. 
And uh, so the pre-arbitration process, most merchants won't dispute um, chargebacks that make it to pre-arbitration because there's uh, fees and penalties um, that are assessed, you know, if you lose. So um, it, it is a very good idea. And it's one of those hidden costs of chargebacks that, that people don't really assess. Most chargeback management teams um, will report their win rates on um, you know the the first representment, um, and then they won't go into uh, to pre arbitration. They won't they won't count those as losses, but um, very often financially they, they should be considered losses. But um, one of the things that that we've recommended that merchants think about is that um, the case that you submit to um, your uh, acquirer is ultimately if if it's successful at overturning the chargeback is is going to be seen by the the customer. Um, and so one of the mistakes that merchants make is they will over sort of automate the process um, and they won't have a sort of human review element in the process. And th what that does is it creates cases that have the potential to have, you know, small errors, errors that would still mean that the case is going to be won. It's still technically a, a good case, but maybe the product description is wrong or maybe, you know, it's it's for a slightly different um um, you know, price or something like that. Uh, and the consumers who are usually very aware of the sort of circumstance that led them to file a chargeback, um, they're going to they're gonna see that information and then they're going to be empowered to contact their bank and say, no, no, look, they lied, um, you know, for, for good reason. Um, so, so that's one of the things that, that we encourage. Make sure that you are, you know, doing your due diligence and you're not creating a process that is, that is too... Um, too error prone um, because because those small mistakes are are going to be seen by the uh, uh, consumer and more often than not the consumer is going to contact their bank and uh, escalate the the dispute. Um, next question, this one's for you, Matt. Um, are cross border payments one of the most vulnerable areas for fraud? And uh, if if that's true, why? Yeah, um, you know, cross border payments are of the more risky variety, I'll say, but they don't have to be. Um, they're also consequently the highest among issuing side declines uh, as well for much of the same reason where there's a high number of disputes and chargebacks. Um, but I guess why the increased risk? I think depending upon where the transaction transaction is originating from, a good verifiable data sources may not be consistent from country to country. Um, you may not be getting all the data or a data trusted by, by a verified source that you would normally use kind of in your risk assessments. So your decisions may rely on fewer data sources making it harder to assess risk. And um, second, the costs of fraud are higher, which I think um, from the issuing side is why uh, they're more risk adverse, but you know, from fees to higher costs of doing business, frankly, shipping, and so the losses can increase. So if you're merchant shipping to a, you know, and if you're merchant shipping to a foreign buyer, uh, you may also have limited ability to recover costs and, uh, and or disputes with issuing banks. But there's, you know, vendors like us that do a lot of this um, and have actually, um, a lot of data sources in foreign countries from the transactions that we're doing. So it's getting a lot better um, and we're finding ways around some of the you know risk adverse areas of the of the of the business at this point. And so I think this one will be getting better over time. All right. The next question is uh, why don't MasterCard and Visa provide clear instructions on what is considered compelling evidence? Um, or just I'm you know <laughs> this is kind of a I answer a very similar question uh, pretty often. Um, but the, the gist is, you know, why, why is it so hard to, you know, um, refute or, um, 
I guess we can't say a dispute anymore, but to challenge um, chargebacks once they're filed. Like, why is it, why is it uh, uh, opaque? And uh, I don't have a great answer for for all of the reasons that it's opaque, but um, you know, one of one of the things is that um, you know, there's varying, there's a lot of different people that everybody's trying to make happy. Um, and so one of the major players is going to be the issuing bank. And so their their sort of customer is the um, your customer, right? So the cardholder is their customer. Uh, and, and so they're going to be loyal to that customer. So a lot of times it's not really the issue that Visa doesn't provide or MasterCard doesn't provide very clear instructions. They do. Um, I mean, they, they're in the payments industry, so you, you're going to have to read a lot. Um, they have... Um, you know, very clear guides. Um, they're, you know, 100 something pages long and they're, you know, full of legalese, but um, all that information is is available. It's 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 been put out there. But um, I, I think the question is, you know, why is it not, you know, why, why, why are the banks not invested in making it easier for me? Um, and, you know, and I, I think that's a complicated uh, answer, but it's, it's, it is difficult. Um, you know, the cards are stacked against you as a merchant. You really have to do everything exactly right if, if you're going to um, prevail and, um, you know, be able to com effectively combat friendly fraud on your own. Um, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with the uh, volume of chargebacks where you, you're, you know, getting tens of chargebacks, maybe hundreds of chargebacks a month, um, then you're probably at the level where you should seek third-party support, right? Just like you shouldn't represent yourself in a, uh, you know, an important criminal case, you probably shouldn't represent yourself, um, you know, when it comes to chargebacks and combating friendly fraud for, for the reason that um, you've identified with your question. Um, <clears throat> that was kind of a non-answer, but we'll, we'll let it stand. Um, wh what are some tips aside from, uh, some tips aside from 3D Secure to fight fraud and prevent transactions from being disputed? Well, I'm glad that you said that that's aside from 3D Secure. So, because um, yeah, I mean, 3D Secure, I know it's required in some markets, so I'm not trying to um, look down. And it's actually a great thing when you're on that edge case of, of somebody you actually may decline, but also, um, you know, the you know, people getting through 3D Secure, um, you get a lot of dropout. So, um, and it also, I understand that's, you know, a way for some merchants to shift liability back to the issuer, which in some cases, um, issuers are higher, uh, they they decline higher on 3D secure transactions if you believe it um, than they do on on other standard transactions because they're obviously um, liable for it so they're going to take a harder look at it but um, you know really the best way to avoid disputes is really honing that fraud engine so going through the um, that optimization process that we talked about and getting really good at, at you know the um, fighting fraud and then also automating your chargeback process in a way to ensure your recoveries are higher. I don't know if you can ever get away from, you know, someone disputing a transaction, but you can drive down your chargeback rate, you know, with people that are actually putting in disputes in, and then you get a lot better through people like Chargebacks 911 at how that is handled on the back end. So, um, yeah, that would be, you know, that would be one way. And you can also outsource the entire piece of it to a vendor like Avesta where, we're responsible for the chargebacks, so we work all that in the back end with, with uh, on on your behalf, and you don't have to touch it. And, and there, Jerry, you may have something to add in there since this is also a post-transaction challenge, right? Yeah, 3D Secure. I think there's been a lot of um, a lot of talk about it lately. That you know, they just came out with kind of new versions. They keep uh, iterating on the the thing, and you know, it, it is a better product. But but I, you know, the the three digits on the back of your credit card at right, one time were 
pretty effective at preventing fraud. So this it's 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 part of that dance. And I and I I think Matt's right. I think really you know because I'm in marketing, an idea that I talk about on webinars, and maybe Matt, you can tell me if this is this makes sense to you, is that that I think I think it behooves you to to test, right? So do to um, you know try to find a, a neutral environment a month that where you have a consistent sales volume. You know turn on 3D Secure, see how it impacts your fraud, see how it impacts your your transactions. Um, you're never going to get a perfectly sort of um, good test environment, but it's important that that you really understand the impact of these different things um, because it's really it's difficult. Just like in in marketing, you know it's there's no way for me to know if a blue button or a red button is going to do better until until I run a test. Um, it's it's very similar with a lot of these things. Your, your intuition as a human is going to be sort of faulty. So um, uh, you know, um, really really collecting data and and running these experiments is is what what I recommend so that um, you can make a, a an informed decision that's right for whatever your specific business is. Yeah, and there's and there's ways you can actually get um, relief from 3D Secure, even in markets that require it through other methods. So I would suggest talking to you know your fraud team or a vendor on what other ways you can increase, I guess, almost a challenge without a without an actual challenge to the customer. Increase um, data being pulled in because that's one of the things we'll do uh, as well as look at other data sources. So and we may we may assess up to 400 different data points but not in every transaction. So some of this may come down to how you model um, within within your fraud engine um, to tune it to escalate different data sources um, to get a better result without having to actually challenge the customer with the 3D secure, through the 3D, through the 3D secure process. Yeah, and I think, I think um, that's gonna be a great segue because uh, Matt, you mentioned in there, um, you know, reaching out and, and talking to a, a vendor. So let me put um, your contact information and my contact information back up on the screen and um, invite anyone that if you have additional questions, if we didn't get to your question today, or if you have questions down the road, um, Matt and I are available to you. If, um, if, if here I don't know how to answer your question, we'll make sure that we uh, um, find somebody within our respective companies that can. Um, thank you guys for joining us today. Thank you so much, Matt, for, for coming. Sorry about the technical difficulties. No, I'm um, glad you had us on. I appreciate it. And thanks to everybody for, uh, for joining and listening in. Yep, all right. With that, uh, we will say goodbye.